Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny debuted this year in 2023, taking place in 1969 with the opening sequence set during World War II in 1945. Directed by James Mangold and co-starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena Shaw, this is Harrison Ford's fifth and final adventure as the iconic silver screen character he first brought to life over 40 years ago. The Ark of the Covenant The Sankara Stones The Holy Grail The Crystal Skull The Dial of Destiny Each of these artifacts has a different origin, beginning in a different time period, in a different part of the world, with no discernible connections. Except one. Podcasters Assemble would like to invite you on a trip around the world, full of adventure, fraught with danger, A colorful cast of characters. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. Ever since you got into my club, you haven't been able to take your eyes off me. Beauty! Beautiful cop! <laughs> and led by the only person qualified for the job. Indy. Indy! 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 Indiana Jones. You call him Dr. Jones. Oh, excuse me, uh, Dr. Henry Jones Jr. Don't call me that, please. Podcasters, assemble. G'day, Alicia. This is Eric Slater from Epic Fails of History, Too Young for This Trek, and Comic Zombie. This is Justin Aki, graphic designer, one half significant article. My name's Bill, and I'm from the RPG Years podcast, the Audio Only Experience podcast, and the Coordinate and Attack on Titan podcast. My name is Douglas Gale, co-host of an Xbox Game Pass podcast called Game Game Pass. Hey, this is Frost from the Super Switch Club. Also a frequent contributor to Super Switch Club and Podcasters Assemble. Hello, I'm Stephen White, co-host of Poor Ramblings and Inspired by a Weeaboo. This is Ben from Dragoon Effect. This is Zach from the Neatcast and FN Cultured and Podcasters Assemble. The podcast you're listening to right now. And you can tell because it starts off with someone saying, Podcasters, assemble! And we're here to talk about, and I'm here this week to talk to you about the brand new Indiana Jones. This season we are assembling for Indiana Jones. Here it is, finally. This particular episode we've assembled for Dial of Destiny. I'm here today to talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Indiana Jones. Dial of Destiny. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And the Dial of Destiny. The fifth and final film of the franchise? Or as I like to call it, Dial for Assistance. Get it? Because he's really old. Spoilers ahead. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something on a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? 
Don't move. Please get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. This way! Fasten your seatbelt. There might be some turbulence. You've taken your chances, made your mistakes, and now a final triumph. Indiana Jones. A few times in my life I've seen things. I've been tortured with voodoo. Been shot nine times. Including once by your father. Ah, sorry. But I've been looking for this all my life. Well, we've made it to the end of our journey, and I'm eager to hear the consensus regarding this film, at least within this group. Ah, uh, yes, the fifth and final entry in the Indiana Jones franchise. Ooh, what a good movie. I really, really enjoyed this movie. In spaces like Twitter and Rotten Tomatoes, it seems like a mixed bag. And I assume we'll get that here. Apparently the plans for the this film started back in the 70s when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out and there was a, a deal made with Paramount to produce four sequels. George Lucas had been researching a potential plot device for the for the fifth film, I think in around late 2000. Let's talk about James Mangold for a second. The man has at least 15 films under his belt, and while I haven't seen every single one of them, the ones I have seen are pretty solid flicks. Copland, Girl Interrupted, Walk the Line, 310 to Yuma, Ford vs. Ferrari, all solid. Hell, even Kate and Leopold has a wonderful charm about it, and is the first pairing of Mangold and Hugh Jackman. That led to the duo teaming up for the Wolverine and then Logan, with the latter no doubt being the reason Disney approached him for The Dial of Destiny. I believe the script was finally started in around 2016, release date uh, 2019, but then that pandemic happened and rewrites and, well, it, you know, finally it came out this year. Initially, it has been reported that Mangold said no when offered this project. It seems the script they handed him needed quite a bit of work, yet they wanted him to start filming immediately. I guess for one brief moment, a studio executive thought that taking the time to do it right would be the smart move. If only they would think like that more often. Uh, now, I haven't had a chance to actually go into the other films that uh, we've done, so I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of my history. So, I love the Indiana Jones films. I mean, let's face it, who the f*** doesn't love Indiana Jones, okay? It is amazing. Absolute brilliant, brilliant films. Just a part of everyone's childhood, you know? They were always on TV, especially around Christmas time, and they were just such fun to watch. And as I was growing up, I always remember Temple of Doom being my favourite. Now that I'm an adult, you know, I'm kind of more in the realm of the third one is definitely the best movie overall. 
I was a little bit nervous at first. When this one was first announced, I was cautiously optimistic. Part of me worried that they might repeat all the same mistakes as last time. But on the other hand, after Crystal Skull, it felt like we really needed at least one more movie to give Indy a proper final adventure. Uh, and let's face it, Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls would have been amazing if only Shia LaBeouf wasn't in that film. Yes, the beef. If the beef wasn't in that movie, that movie would be great because he's a terrible actor and he's trying to be James Dean, who was an amazing actor, and it fouls miserably and it ruins the whole film. Every moment he's on screen brings that film down another 10 notches to the point where it is ridiculed. Some details leaked out a while back that kind of concerned me. With the villain being a NASA scientist and rumors start swirling about time travel. This was another sci-fi concept like Aliens that, out of context, felt like it could be a disaster if it wasn't handled well. Then the title was announced. And I got a little worried. I gotta admit, I was on the hate bandwagon with the dial soap memes. Uh, and just rolling my eyes at the idea of a radio dial or something like that. I hadn't really considered that the term might be referring to a sundial type device. I have been eagerly anticipating this movie. Despite all that, when the first teaser trailer dropped, I was sold. And I'm glad that I didn't give up on my excitement for one final indie adventure because, man, did this movie deliver. I want to preface my review by saying that I wish I would have had the opportunity to watch this film again before giving my overall thoughts. Lately, movies that I went to in the theater would leave me with a reaction of meh, but upon a rewatch at home, I would find that I enjoyed it much more. While some can easily say that's the fault of the movie itself, I've also had a beef with the theaters that I've had to attend. But that's a tale for another podcast. I think we can all agree... This is by far the worst Indiana Jones movie. Sure, it's not perfect, but after Crystal Skull, the bar was pretty low. They also go out of their way to be like, it's not aliens. I mean, interdimensional beings is not that ridiculous when you consider the other shit that Indiana Jones has seen and done. But yeah, Shia LaBeouf is just the worst thing ever to happen to Indiana Jones, and I will maintain that for my life. Seriously, the only thing this movie had to get right was that it had to be better than Crystal Skull. And I'm happy to say it was, without a doubt, a thousand times better than that one. This was a really wonderful ending to a fantastic franchise. Anyway, Dial of Destiny. Oh, oh, yes. It's also worth pointing out that the Dial of Destiny was actually inspired by a real-world device called the Antikythera Mechanism. Antikythera, Antikythera, Anti... Antithera that they have, whatever the dial, that was discovered from the wreckage of a ship in the Mediterranean Sea in 1901. It was basically an ancient Greek analog computer with gears and everything, dating back to at least 100 BCE. The big clock MacGuffin in this movie that, unlike the previous Indiana Jones movies, the device itself is not magical in universe i mean it's an impossible object it couldn't exist in the real world but in the indieverse it exists it does its thing but it is just like a um a, a scientific instrument as far as mystical MacGuffins go this is one of my favorites in the franchise it's based on a real thing the real antikythera is just like this super complicated collection of gears that when you spin them around, you know, can can show you uh, positions of the moon and dates and things like this. It's it's a 
I want to say that it's straightforward in the sense that it's just like, you know, mechanical and whatnot. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge accomplishment, especially for the time that it was made. The, the, the tooling for it and the, and the precision required. And this was also a thing that had, there were like multiple versions of things like this had been made by people at the time. So funny story with this movie. My wife and I went to our local indie theater, pretty badass, Sunray Cinema. Give some shout outs. I saw this with my Todd at the cinema the day after it came out. Me and my missus, we went to the Everyman Theatre to watch this, which is a really great theatre. They have like huge seats, which are basically like sofas, and they do like dinner service and bring you drinks to your seat. Great stuff. Uh, we picked up a bucket of beers, Narragansett, a large popcorn, added a bunch of flavours, sat down and watched Indy punch Nazis for 30 minutes. First time seeing it? Well, uh, you know, movie theatres. <laughs> And we really enjoyed it. So I just saw it in theaters, and I have to say, this is at least the fourth best Indiana Jones movie. This might be my fourth favorite indie movie. Which sounds like I hated it, but I actually really loved it. Because I I actually did have an opportunity. I didn't know if I would. Uh, but luckily, the, the our second kid... Uh, was pushed back a little bit, um, just delivery-wise. She just was not ready. So I had a day to go and sit down and watch Dial of Destiny. And then right when it gets to the 1960s, the power goes out. Literally, whole theater lost power, whole block lost power. So we had to go back the week afterwards and watch India punch Nazis again. It was kind of glorious for that part, but uh, yeah, I, I, I had no idea what I was going to get into after that part. But in saying that, Last Crusade is like is at the top, but then Raiders and Doom and Dial are all on like the same level. The rest of the film, it was fine. Nazi punching, 100%. Awesome. Random adventures in Tangiers, Greece, and eventually uh, Sicily. But like old Sicily. Those adventures are fine. The movie was fine. And then Skull is just like, I don't know, down here under my shoe or something. It was a lot better than Crystal Skull, uh, 100%. Uh, and it had some satisfying action sequences and the ending. And yeah, the whole sort of thing was very, very Indiana Jonesy. No, that's the best way of saying it. Uh, but I mean, even now, it's still only my fourth of fifth indie movies, if you get me. In any case, I feel that one viewing is hardly enough to give a solid opinion of anything. So consider these my initial thoughts. For our cast of characters, uh, Harrison Ford as his final, final version, endeavor, outing. We see the return of Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones at a crisp 79 years old during filming. Harrison Ford, as always, is a class act. Uh, performance? Yeah, performance as Dr. Henry Indiana Jones Jr., Speaking of Harrison Ford, you have to applaud the man's commitment to this character. Uh, there were times in Crystal Skull where it felt like he was phoning it in, but you could tell he was really engaged with this one. Of all the characters he's portrayed over film and television, this is the one he loves the most. Although technically we do have Anthony and Gruber uh, playing a young Indiana Jones when they do the, the de-aging. He, he's the body double, I believe. He looks good for a 79-year-old, but... Uh, you could definitely tell he's kind of limping around out there. While old man Indy could have felt untrue to the character at times, Ford finds a way to ease back into the role and play him at a ripe old age, while adding some deep pathos to the character that the previous film missed the mark on. And I actually think we got some of his best acting in this movie. But I guess it, it works. It works. To me, he still is and always will be Indiana Jones. I think the star of the show was Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena Shaw. We have Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Helena Shaw, 
Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, Helena Shaw, Jones's goddaughter, Indy's goddaughter, who we meet for the first time in this film. Now, this this lady, Helena, is play, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is an insanely talented person. She's an awesome writer and an amazing actor. She even wrote No Time to Die. I've always heard massive praise thrown upon Phoebe Waller-Bridge for her show Fleabag, amongst other performances. However, I think this is the first time I've actually seen her in a movie. I've seen movies she's provided voices for, but not in person. So, seeing how this could be my first introduction to her as a physical actress, I think she's pretty good. She was just amazing. She was magnetic. I really liked her character in this movie. And she is just an absolute great kind of sidekick to Indy. I don't need morality lessons from an aging grave robber. Oh, what a great line. I feel like the role of Helena was written with her in mind because she feels right for the part. I couldn't quite decide if I liked Helena as a character or not. I could take or leave Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this movie. She's young, doesn't give a shit, constantly in danger, mostly of her own doing. She is perfect. How did you turn out this way? What do you mean? Resourceful? Daring? Beautiful? Self-sufficient? Because while she was awesome... I thought at times that maybe she was a bit too much. She was incredible in this movie. Uh, the character is fine, but everything she did just seemed to, you know, wink and a nod to the camera. Like, eh? Eh? I'm in an indie film? Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't totally believable. But, but then I realized that it was because she was essentially a young indie and was starting to take over the mantle a little bit, and that just made me a bit sad. She is like a young Indiana Jones, just purposely doing bad things like trying to sell dials on the black market <laughs> being chased by an old boyfriend who's really rich and really weirdly lovesick over her people were worried that uh they were building her up as a replacement for andy but honestly that wasn't the case at all so once i got over that i really liked her sure she was a big part of the movie but he was very much the main character and she was a total badass she just jumped off the screen with her, just her ability to just really embody the role of this, you know, young, brash, adventurous woman making it out on her own. And I loved that at every town that they crashed in or got stuck in, she had some kind of street food in her hand. Awesome. That said, I wouldn't mind seeing more of her in a spinoff series, maybe even teaming up with Short Round. It really worked for me. The dude that plays Vola, the, the key bad guy. I love Mads Mikkelsen and everything. Mads Mikkelsen? Mads Mikkelsen? Mads Mikkelsen is another fantastic actor who does a great job in this film as Jürgen Voller. Mads Mikkelsen plays Jürgen Voller, the German Nazi physicist who is the main bad. He plays a great bad guy, semi-decent good guy, but I mean, he's a way better bad guy. This dude is always such a great villain, whether it's in Doctor Strange or as Le Chief in Casino Royale. Wait, uh, this is another Bond connection. So, I mean, we do continue to get the same kind of casting going forward. Mads Mikkelsen as Jürgen Vola. This guy plays a good Nazi. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's good at being a Nazi. You know what I mean. He's so good and creepy as a Nazi that I almost worry that he's just like that in real life. <laughs> he is fantastic. His facial expression, like, never changes. So he always looks super serious, like he could just shoot you in the back at any moment. Great. He's a German scientist and astrophysicist and former Nazi during World War II. Yeah, no, he was great. He was awesome. Antonio Banderas. Hey, 
look, it's Antonio Banderas, who I didn't recognize until the credits rolled. I actually totally forgot he was in this movie. Antonio Banderas as Puss in Boots. I mean, Ronaldo. Uh, it wasn't until the credits came up at the end, and then I realized, oh yeah. Yes, he's Ronaldo in this film. An old friend of Jones who operates as an expert frogman. He was so great that I didn't recognize him in the movie. Uh, he just disappeared into his character, and I remember thinking... Man, whoever this is, he's really good. So, yeah, that was kind of a shock to me because I totally forgot he was in this uh, until the credits. Antonio Banderas was good casting. Uh, oh, God, seeing him made me feel, feel super old. I wonder if they actually make that Antonio Banderas blow-up doll. Then we have Toby Jones as Basil Shaw. Toby Jones is always a welcome sight in films, and here he's playing Basil Shaw, an old colleague of Dr. Jones. Toby Jones plays Basil Shaw, Oxford professor, archaeologist, and uh, ally of Jones during World War II. It was really nice to see him play a character other than a Nazi, especially in a movie with a bunch of Nazis, uh, so that was cool. <laughs> yes, I know the actor wasn't playing a Hydra agent in this one, but that die is cast, little man. You're always, always a, a bad Nazi dude. I mean, he's a he's a great actor, and there was some really great heartfelt moments between the two, between him and Indy. It felt like there was a history there, even though we'd never seen or heard of this guy before. He plays the character to a T, with his quest for the Antikythera seeming innocent at first until it spirals out of control, which creates an interesting dichotomy for the story. Boyd Holbrook as Kleber, he's one of the trigger-happy uh, gunmen that works with, uh, with Voller. And then we have Sala. And also John Reese davies returns as Sala. I really appreciate the cameo from Sala. We also have John Reese davies making a quick appearance as Sala. But God, Jesus, uh, John Reese davies looks old. It was great to see John Reese davies one last time. Uh, he absolutely embodies this character and is just overflowing with charm. It hurt me to think that Gimli is now also 80. Uh, basically, this movie made me feel old for something set in 1969. Jones's very old friend who helped him in Ark of the Covenant and uh, the Holy Grail. I think this really worked too. I love that man. Give him hell, Indiana Jones. John Williams returned to score Indy one final time with these compositions feeling much more refreshed than last time. I should, I should talk about John Williams, who I believe this is his final film score. We once again get John Williams, who is also 90. It's worth noting that this was John Williams' final movie. He's also a liar, and he said this was going to be the last film, but nope, he's going to keep going. Uh, and it, it probably, he says it's his final one, it probably is. I mean, he's like 91, 92 years old at this point. I was concerned early on in the film after hearing a reprise of On the Tank from Last Crusade during the bike chase to the train. Luckily, it was just a nice callback. The music, uh, you know, I I did enjoy the music. While it's sad that he's hanging up his baton, he has absolutely earned it. All fairness, man loves what he does, and it probably helps him keep going, like, in life. We're lucky we got as many incredible scores out of him as we got. Uh, you can tell that John Williams did a few things a little bit different. The music was perfect as always. I did like the tie-in of the themes throughout the film. There's a little bit of everything, just... Just sprinkle throughout. Of course, we've talked about this to death on this podcast, but it's worth repeating here. John Williams can do no wrong. Especially at the end of the movie. It is, um, you know, it's a, it's a different delivery. This movie had a lot of emotional beats, and the music really sold it. A little bit, not somber, but it is a swan song 
kind of delivery. Uh, that's how I interpreted it. That being said, none of the compositions stood out to me as something iconic. Something that will be remembered down the line. Uh, the first kickoff of the Indies theme, uh, when they're chasing the, the, the motorcycle down to the train, that was, that was fantastic. The original three films have several of those compositions. Crystal Skull had zero. The closest this one has is maybe Helena's theme, but if you played me several tracks from the film blind, I don't know if I would actually be able to identify it. But it's still, it was, it it, it brought back, back that nostalgia and the general feeling and enjoyment that I had for these movies. The man is, and always will be, one of the best composers of our time. In any case, it was nice to have him back for one more ride. All right, let's uh, let's let's get into this. The movie begins with the sounds of a ticking clock. I have been eagerly anticipating this movie because I wanted to see how they were going to handle the opening logo fade in. The only thing I really missed was the slow motion pan from the Paramount Hills logo into real hills, which was a little bit sad. If you've listened to my ramblings this season, you'll know that's a huge part of the movie for me. And so I was a little worried. I had some mixed feelings at the beginning. Unfortunately, this one doesn't open with a clever fade from a mountaintop, and instead we just jump right into it. They fade out from the Lucasfilm logo instead of the Paramount mountain, which I get it. Paramount's not directly involved. So they can't really uh, use their logo, and they fade it out to a to a latch on a briefcase. So uh, they didn't cheat, which I appreciate. It's different, so it took some getting used to. But that's honestly my only complaint about this entire opening sequence. Um, but yeah, ultimately, ultimately on board, which I again I think maps to my whole feelings about the movie. The opening logo fade is a microcosm for the movie at whole. Kicking the movie off in Germany circa 1944 was kind of neat. This opening scene is so intense. We start back in time, 1944. The beginning of the movie is a neat little throwback to a previous adventure. I say kinda because while it was a return to something familiar, this is fan service at the highest level. And uh, it's, it's near the end of World War II. The Allies are invading and the Nazis are on the run. And, oh, the Nazis have captured somebody. Turns out to be Indiana Jones, who was impersonating a, uh, a, a Nazi officer. There were several decent action sequences. I love everything about the first 30 minutes of this movie. That whole car chase to train felt like old school Indy. It's like saying, you remember this? Yeah, I do. I've seen the previous films. So let's talk about the de-aged cold open. They use a little bit of shadow play to uh, reveal who he is. With some excellent special effects making Indy young and extra handsome again. We missed the first two minutes, so I'm not sure what actually happened. But, you know, bloody hell, Indiana Jones was on a train and he looked really, really young. Uh, the de-aging technology worked pretty well because they also relied a lot on practical effects. Stuntmen with masks on, actual stunts. I think the de-aging really worked. I really couldn't tell that it was CG. And the de-aging here doesn't look that bad. The CGI on the de-aging of Harrison Ford is really bad. The de-aging effects are incredible. I thought the de-aging was not great. Actually looks, uh, looks all right. His eyes do not 
look right. Yes, I was super, super impressed with how they pulled this off, making him look like Indiana Jones from the younger films. Uh, but whatever, I mean, they were confident in it because apparently they expanded it from being just five minutes to this whole 20-minute opening sequence. In this opening sequence, I did expect there to be a bit of dodgy effects work when it came to the de-aging of Harrison Ford. And it, I mean, it, it works. He really, he does look like a young Harrison Ford and Mads Mikkelsen. Rarely has it looked flawless in a film. We've come a long way since CGI Tarkin in Rogue One and DH Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian. Although I can't remember a flawed image of Samuel L. Jackson's face in Captain Marvel, or even Secret Invasion. But he's not 80 years old, and from what I've been told, black don't crack. And I thought the CGI, you know, it, it was just enough to make him look young not look like he was some sort of CGI thing walking around, but like a real young Indiana Jones walking around on screen. I thought it was brilliant. You could really only tell in certain shots if you were looking for it. But I have a feeling that in the future, 10, 15 years from now, you will look back at this and go, oh, why did I think that that looked so good? If you're someone who thinks that it looks so good. And the only big giveaway at times was his voice. I wasn't even all that bothered by his voice, even though you know they could have easily de-aged that, no problem. The only thing that really didn't mesh was his voice. You know, I mean, he's still doing the line readings and he's, you know, Harrison Ford's 79 years old. So it did sound like a much older man giving the performance in, in sort of a younger man's body. So there's a little bit of dissonance there. Similar to kind of Jurassic Park, where the CGI stuff at the time was blowing people's minds but is, you know, fairly hokey looking now to our eyes. There's just, if you see it on the big screen, you can see the kind of unnatural waveriness to it. But otherwise, um, it looked like this was filmed, you know, in the in the 90s almost. Like, it, he, he looked younger. Uh, it worked. And it's creepy and, like, there's no soul in him. I was fully expecting Indiana Jones in the Uncanny Valley but honestly, I think they kind of perfected it. I was, uh, you know, blown away. But there's the occasional glimpse of something off that can take you out of the movie at times, and it's a distraction I could have done without. Like a lot of the CGI and de-aging that we've seen over the years, it tends to look better in the dark than in the light. But this is probably the best de-aging that I've seen, and it really shows how spooky this shit is going to be. My wife and I were both super impressed by it. In any case, I suppose they did their best. But in my humble opinion, if you can't nail it, don't do it. I think I think it worked. I think it worked. I'm going to say that a lot. I think it worked. Overall, I love this opening action sequence. It's I mean, it's it's good. It's a solid action sequence. The cold open on the train, you know. This whole sequence could have been nothing more than a lost adventure that in the wrong hands could have had zero to do with the plot. Luckily, James Mangold ensured it was integral to the plot. The train sequence was classic action, you know, sort of farcical action where all these strange things happen. What would I give it? Like a B plus, an A minus? I was, it's, it wasn't mind blowing, but it was great. Jones is there as an attempt to retrieve the lance of Lon Longinus, Lon Longinus, the, the lance of tinnitus. He's there. That's going to be painful. Gotta love this throwaway tie-in to the comic book storyline from Indiana Jones and the Spear of Destiny. Who wants the Lance of Tinnitus? That, I've had tinnitus. No, thank you. Speaking of fake outs, the beginning train sequence, um, we have the Spear of Longinus as 
I think, sort of a light fake-out MacGuffin. If you didn't know anything else about the movie, I think it might seem like for a few minutes that that's what it is going to be about. It's the type of artifact that really would fit into the previous movie's kind of vibes. Anyways, uh, Jürgen informs uh, his Nazi superiors that the Lance is indeed uh, a fake. It's a fake. Anyone anyone seen that episode of DS9? Anyone? Uh, but that's not. That's not the artifact that we're going to get. The spear's fake, and they accidentally pick up the dial, which turns out to be way more important. But, uh, good news, he has found the other half of Archimedes' dial, which is this antique mechanism built by the ancient mathematician, which reveals that uh, time has fissures, which means time travel could be possible. And you've got you got the bloody bad guy from James Bond's telling you that this is some sort of thing that can detect time rifts. And it's just like, oh, this is so cool. This is so cool. Absolutely love it. I do appreciate that we got to see Indy in the, in the war because uh, it was always hinted at in Crystal Skull, you know, with his main frenemy, Mac. I've always wanted to see Indy during World War II fighting Nazis behind enemy lines since the original trilogy all takes place right before the war breaks out. Honestly, leading up to the Nazi punching and killing the Raiders in the Last Crusade, he'd have to do something during the war. Like, all that was right before that. He was, what, his 20s during Raiders? Late 20s? Thanks to a cleverly dropped uh, plot device that explodes the tower where Indy is being held, uh, he escapes uh, somehow without losing his head. The fact that he most likely was doing it on his own, though, is crazy. Uh, what's his name? The professor's like, oh, you're, we're just archaeologists. Like, was he not sanctioned? It, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. This feels like a scene from an indie movie we never got. There's even a fun chase through a train. We get a lot of chase scenes. This whole train sequence is so damn good. I I just love this, you know, had everything. Gunfights, battles. Uh, obviously, Nazi punching on the train. That was fun. And you know what? This is already improvement over Crystal Skull because we're five minutes in and he's already punched his first Nazi. Uh, some Nazi impersonation by Indy. Being sneaky. <laughs> he's like dressed as a as a Nazi and just eating his food while people are walking past looking for him. Also liked Indiana Jones uses his whip to disarm some someone, which I don't think has been in any of the movies and is only like a video game indie thing. Uh, pretty cool to see. Barely escapes two guards who don't shoot him at point blank. He manages to lock doors just by putting a piece of metal across the thing. But they don't think to break the glass or shoot him through it or anything like that. The finding of some sweet, sweet new treasure and evading of Nazis. Nazi punching, 100%. It's perfect. I will say the the point where they show the, the far off shot of Jones jumping onto the train and running, uh, that, that, CGI or special effect, it looks rough. It looks it looks fake. The the person running, CGI is not always that good. The Nazis at this point had discovered uh, Basil was working with Indy. They captured him. Uh, he was holding on to the whip and hat. And gotta give them credit for having the biggest Nazi body count right out the gate. My favorite part of it was the AA gun. The anti-aircraft gun taking out an entire company of, of German soldiers. The anti-aircraft gun that's on the train that the, the Nazi trains. Uh, and then the allies shoot the gun and then the gun kind of like dips down and spins and then is just shooting the train itself. And as the train kind of goes around the bend, this AA gun is just like duh, 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 chewing in to the train and the Nazis. Even the AA gun tearing through the train cars was legit. Fuck them Nazis. It's just uh, it's just wonderful. That was fun. That was just a great little mini 
segment of the action sequence. I don't know if I've seen that particular thing, the AA gun shooting its own train in a movie before. Indy is able to free Basil. He uh, d- is able to take the dial piece and, and then bang! Javier Bodem gets a slap in the face from something going on the train at 100 miles an hour just before the Allies bomb it and derail it. What a fantastic cold open. They, uh, they're able to leap from the train just before the Allied forces derail it, and it, it should have ended up in the river, but I guess not. It just stops and balances on the bridge. Okay. <laughs> then he jumps into the river with Basil. It's absolutely great. I enjoyed this uh, train scene. I did enjoy this opening scene. Uh, At times, you could tell it is heavily edited with CGI. Uh, Looks a lot better, though, than than the Crystal Skull. Uh, I would hope so. We're quite a few few years in the future now. I hope it would look better. Also, Jürgen takes a a water, uh, whatever it is, a water tower uh, dispenser to the face. I mean, that should have... That should have concaved his skull. One thing I appreciate about all these movies, and even the Young Indy series, is that there's so much history being woven into the narrative. And it's no different here. The cut into modern indie was pretty shocking, but very fun. And then old Indiana Jones. Now, I like this bit, because it skips forward to 1969. We flash forward to the present, 1969. We jump forward a number of years uh, from 1944. We're now in 1969, giggity. The year NASA's Apollo 11 successfully landed on the moon. When we reach the present, or I guess past us. Throughout the movie, we get all kinds of references to the 60s. A musical callback to the Beatles with the Magical Mystery Tour, uh, which is kind of clever. The choice of Magical Mystery Tour to wake him up is, uh, it's great. I love that song. Uh, I love that album. Has anyone seen the movie? Has anyone seen the movie Magical Mystery Tour? It is a thing. Certainly a thing. There's protests to the Vietnam War, and even some subtle hints at civil rights. We see that Indy is a bit older now. He's living in New York City, and he is uh, he is a grumpy old man who walks around in his underwear with a baseball bat knocking on people's doors. Also cool to see old man Indy yelling at his neighbors. Damn, that's funny. Just old Indy in his, in his shorts with no shirts. Keep it down, you hippies. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Oh, right after the cold open, uh, Elise gets her shirtless indie shot. Look at that, Elise, huh? Just for you. I think I like crotchety old man indie just as much as I love Temple of Doom indie. I do think he can play grumpy, no matter what the age he is. Uh, I mean, get off my plane. I also just imagine him telling stories to his neighbors or colleagues. Just like, hey, keep it down in there. I commune with aliens. I don't need to put up with this bullshit. I fought the Nazis. I made Nazis melt. <laughs> yeah. He's so perfect. I mean, he's he's 79, but I mean, I think he pulls it off. So Indy is canonically 70 in this movie. Harrison Ford is 80. It's an octogenarian playing a septuagenarian. 79 years old during filming. Uh, and I'd say he looks every bit of it. <laughs> I mean, he looks good for a 79-year-old. And he looks really old. And boy... He should have been killed like 17 times in this movie by people far younger than him that are quicker. You could definitely tell he's kind of limping around out there. Uh, but it's interesting to note that they made him not fragile, but just over it. All of it. It was really, really sad to see. They actually, I think they purposely did this. They made him look older here than he does as the film goes on. 
because I feel like the whole film as it goes on is kind of like him rediscovering his younger self. And he does seem to like look younger and younger as points of the film go on. And so I think they did this really well, making him look old here. His middle name is Walton. New fact. Write that down. <laughs> trivia. Get ready for a trivia night. Indiana Jones trivia night. Middle name, Walton. On the fridge, we see that there is um, a filing for legal separation between him and Marion, which uh, I know it's revealed later. Uh, maybe I missed something on the fridge, but uh, my initial reaction was, really, we, we got we to gotta make them split up again? That That's how we're going with it? Okay. Old Man Henry is teaching at what looks to be a different college. Oh, no. Unlike the past, people are barely paying attention to Indiana's class anymore. His students aren't horny for him anymore. In fact, they're barely paying attention. Um, that's fun. Damn you, progress. I like that. I like them leaning more into the old man stuff than they did in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was supposed to be old man indie. This is, this is really old man indie. I wondered about this transition and relate it back to the previous film where he'd been fired because of all that communist sympathizer crap he got saddled with because of Agent Janitor. We never saw him be cleared of anything, nor did we see him being reinstated either. Therefore, we can only assume he could only find work as a teacher in a lesser public university like Hunter College. Being blacklisted was a pretty real thing, and I find it adds some intriguing layers to the missing time between films. We also learned that India is going to be retiring from Hunter College, so they're they're throwing him a, a surprise uh, going away retirement party. He's retiring. He throws away his gift. That's pretty cold. I don't know what's up with that, but fine. Gets his retirement clock, throws it in the bin, which is hilarious. <laughs> or no, he gives it to a homeless guy, doesn't he? As he walks past. Jones's goddaughter, Helena. Hel Helena. Helena. I love Phoebe Waller Bridges. Bridges plural. She's a Bridges. How do I say this, Helena? Here we're introduced to Helena. I'm gonna go with Helena. Anyways, and she is a rapscallion. I don't know. Is that the right word? She's great. Love her as Helena, as Wombat in this movie. I think she's fantastic. She really channels the charm of an Indiana Jones type and the adventurous spirit. Before he re, uh, reacquaints himself with his goddaughter, who is fantastic in this film. Absolutely fantastic. This is how I picture Elise. Is that... <laughs> I feel like she's kind of an Indiana Jones at this, at his, what he would be at this age, where I think she's, I think the math works out. She's about 30, her character in this movie. And like the youngest we've seen Indy as an adult on the screen was Temple of Doom, where he's like 35, 36. And he's kind of a scoundrel who then has a change of heart at the end of this movie. She's an archaeologist. She shows up unexpectedly and she uh, claims that she wants to research the dial. He did have more brains in this one, going back to old school Indy. Uh, though he didn't really have his notebook, just the notes left by uh, Herman Zoller. Yes, I know the actor wasn't playing a Hydra agent in this one, but that die is cast, little man. You're always always a, a bad Nazi dude. We also see that uh, Jürgen has survived, although he's going by an alias right now, and that he is in New York City on Moon Day. To try and recover the dial has been also following Helena. I also thought it was really interesting to make the villain a former Nazi turned NASA scientist. The weakest part of the movie, though, was also, for me, was Mad Mickelson's Nazi Voller 
slash Schmidt as sort of an Operation Paperclip, secret Nazi scientist working for NASA. Which kind of echoes the real-life secret U.S. program codenamed Operation Paperclip, where the American government recruited German scientists after World War II. I really like the the plot addition that the German rocket scientist, who was also a Nazi, is also responsible for helping the U.S. get to the moon, because that definitely happened. There's a U.S. agent who's accompanied by thugs of a person that helps get a rocket to the moon. In fact, Mads Mikkelsen's character was basically a less redeemable version of Werner von Braun. A character loosely based on Werner von Braun, a former Nazi who did work for NASA and resided in Alabama. The man who invented the Saturn V rocket. Thank goodness that guy wasn't plotting anything nefarious as Voller. For more on the early days of NASA, check out my Epic Fails history book with Ben Thompson, The Race to Space, Countdown to Liftoff. Eventually, Indy is approached by Helena, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the daughter of Basil Shaw, who is looking for the Antikythera. Indy warns her, though, that, uh, that Basil, who has since passed away, became obsessed studying the dial. Good quotes of this movie. Damn, this movie is filled with good quotes. Indiana Jones to Wombat. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? And her response is, wouldn't you? Which is, a, a, I think, a great direct reference to um, Last Crusade. That's what literally the plot of that movie is. And he, uh, he ended up relinquishing it to Jones to destroy, but Jones never did. It became apparent after the scene with Indy and Helena discussing her desire to find the Antikythera that the story was trying to reflect parallels. But he was definitely, you know, a fortune and glory kid. And, you know, um, Wombat is fortune and glory at this point. She says one of the reasons she wants to go on this grand adventure is to become famous. And as we learn later, it's pretty much mostly about the money. And she she is also, you know, uh, totally okay with that. And, and I love it. The line Indy says about chasing her father's obsession rang very true about Indy. The same can be said with Helena's treasure-hunting goals of fortune and glory, not having reached Indy's point of understanding the true value of these artifacts. I love it. We do get a change of heart from her, of course. You know, it'd be a weird movie if, if the second lead just is like, uh, you know, a rapscallion the whole way through. So that's fine. I get it. You know what? I just looked up the definition of rapscallion. It basically means villain. Uh, so that's not the word I'm looking for, but y you know what I mean. Andy brings Helena to the uh, location at the university that uh, he was hiding the dial when Jurgen and all of his people show up. Or Dr. Schmidt, is that who he's going by? Doc Dr. Schmidt. Yes, Dr. Schmidt shows up with uh, all of his trigger-happy people and one giant of a man. Of the two henchmen, there's the one guy who's just giant. There's there's always a uh, heavy-type goon in the Indiana Jones movies. That's been kind of a fun little staple of it, and we, we get one of those here. And uh, just smashes stuff. Just a big, giant guy wearing a shirt like nine sizes too small for him, it seems like, to emphasize his beefy muscleness. But the other guy is like just trigger happy and just shoots everyone all the time and no more so than at the end of the movie uh, which i guess we'll get to when the i guess neo-nazis come looking for the antikythera i really liked seanette renee williams uh as agent wilson a black female fbi agent that we see in the 60s we also have a, a cia operative uh, agent mason who's played by seanette renee wilson I may have missed, messed up her name. I apologize. Anyways, she's great. What a what a fantastic aesthetic. What a great character. 
but this part of the movie was confusing to me. She's continuously trying to keep the trigger-happy assassins from, well, being trigger-happy. Those thugs just kill people, and she's like, oh, okay, whatever. I've seen the movie twice, and I, it makes sense now, I get it, but the first time watching the movie, I, I, I was like, why are, why are these guys killing people, and why is the CIA agent just kind of like rolling with it, and what the, what is going on? Are they all bad guys? Are they good guys that are doing bad things? I didn't... Like... Seriously, you're not here to protect the thugs? All these Nazis who low-key infiltrated the U.S. government was kind of clever, too. Reminded me of the Hydra plot in Captain America Winter Soldier. Uh, they just start uh, killing people. And they're just indiscriminately killing people. And it's fine. It's whatever. It's not super important, but I do kind of wish that this had been expanded on and, and stretched out a little bit. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, and look, now she's dead. Woo! This leads to one of many chase scenes in the film. We get a lot of chase scenes that go on so long. Chase, 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 chase. Spoiler alert, this entire movie is one giant chase. While thrilling, there were a few face swap effects that were at times a bit wonky. And that didn't make sense to me. Why go out of your way to shoot a scene where you have to add the face swap effect versus blocking the scene differently and maybe editing around it? I know we have the technology to do this now, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. So many action films of the past, you know, like the first three entries of the series, found ways around showing the face of the stunt double and did it with great effect. Why spend all that extra money? Anyways, Helena ends up uh, grabbing the dial and, and leaving Jones. Indy then has to escape uh, Dr. Schmidt, or at least try to. He ends up being captured, tries to call the police, but um, is dragged down into <laughs> into a escape CIA vehicle. We find out that Helena is a... Actually, she's an antique smuggler. She's not actually uh, nice, nice at all and wants to abscond with the dial to make some money with it on the black market. India's frame for his colleague's murder at the at the college, forcing him to escape into the uh, the parade on horseback, celebrating the moon landing of Apollo 11. In fact, there's an entire sequence where India interrupts the parade in New York for Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. This moon day parade scene is wonderful. I appreciate the ticker tape parade for the astronauts in New York City, but it's funny that it was shot in Glasgow because that town still has some older buildings along the main drag and totally fits in with 1969's New York City. I really enjoyed all those little details throughout. This this whole scene, uh, it's it's good. It's good action. We've just started the movie. We've had a train chase. Now we have a horse chase that turns into a horse and car and motorcycle chase, which involves a subway car. Um, Indy, Indy on a horse is always good. We get a lot of chase scenes. There's a few moments, especially during the New York scenes, where it felt like the tone was a bit jumbled. Uh, motorcycles <laughs> and, and just chaos galore during this, um, this scene. The NASA stuff is also pretty clever because it kind of emphasizes how Dr. Jones is a man out of time. It's weird to think that someone who was born before the Wright brothers invented the first plane would still be around during the Apollo missions, but it just goes to show you how many things have changed in such a short period of time, and I love that this whole series really puts that into perspective in a cool way. Now, Indy is able to escape, and he, he seeks out his old friend Sala. The way they framed it is that Indy got Sala and his family um, into New York during the war. Who is now uh, hanging out in New York as a uh, as a cab driver. He drives a cab now. 
All right. I love seeing Sala again, even though it was nothing more than a cameo. Wasn't a big fan of Sala coming back. I like him. I like his character. Absolutely unnecessary. Sala figures that Helena will most likely uh, be auctioning the dial in Tangier, and then he helps uh, Indy flee the country. John Reese davies is always a delight, and the few scenes we got of him added some interesting layers to his backstory as well, which was nice. Sala's been back before. We didn't. We really didn't need to see him again in this movie, so uh, we could have cut that. Give me some more Operation Paperclip uh, secret NASA Nazi scientist stuff. Set that kind of thing up. But uh, he probably had the best line reading of the entire film uh, when he says, uh, you know, I miss the sea. I miss the desert. I miss the sense of adventure. You know, that it was that one, you know, line reading right there, right before Indy gets on that plane to Morocco, where you really, really, you could tell, you know, that he's an I mean, he's an amazing actor, but that that was one of the highlights of the film for me was that line reading. And even offers to go with him. I mean, he gives, I like his speech. Uh, I believe it was used in the in the trailer for, for a little bit. Give him hell, Indiana Jones. Having Indy and Sala on an adventure would have been good, but I bet Sala would have been killed. And so I'm okay with Sala staying, staying behind. Indy gets to the Tangier Hotel. All right, Tangier is one of my favorite sections of the movie, maybe my second favorite section of the movie. I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff in Morocco, even if I feel like some of it could have been cut for time. Indy basically cosplays as himself. <laughs> With his, with his hat and the whip and everything. There was a lot of great style there between the period costuming and the Marrakesh set design. So that was fun. And he disrupts the uh, illegal private auction, which, you know, is grumpy old man Indy with a whip. Great reversal of the uh, whip versus a gun. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, hand, melee weapon versus a gun from the very first movie where the guy demonstrates his sword and then... And he pulls out a gun and shoots him instead of it being a whip battle. And in this movie, Indiana Jones has got his whip and then a room full of people pull guns on him. That's uh, pretty funny. When Indy gets to Tangier to confront Helena, he also encounters Voller, whom he thought to be dead after what seemed to be a very definitive death. Voller to Indy, your face rings a bell. <laughs> the Indiana Jones, are you still a Nazi? <laughs> uh, yeah. When Voller is talking to Indiana and they have the... I don't know, the MacGuffin. So many MacGuffins. No one does MacGuffins better than the Indiana Jones uh, franchise. But they're talking to each other over the tablet thing, whatever. There's so much good dialogue in this movie. So many, so many good lines in this movie. I really dug the capitalism line. And then the whole interaction. It's not yours. You stole it. And then you stole it. Yeah. And then Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Wonderful. Voller and his henchmen arrive. Indy tells the Nazi scientist, you should have stayed out of Poland. Voller's like, you should have stayed in New York, Indiana Jones. And Indy just retorts, you should have stayed out of Poland. Hats off, fedoras off, that line f***ing rules. There's a, there's a shootout. Mads Mikkelsen says, see you in the past, Dr. Jones. Or something like that, which I thought was pretty great. They were able to steal the artifact while Jones, Helena, and her little teen sidekick, uh, Teddy? It's also in the scene that we're introduced to Teddy, which is Helena's short round, another character parallel. I don't mind her short round, though. So we have, we're introduced to Teddy, who's basically the short round stand-in for this one. While the actor who played Teddy, Ethan Isidore, did a fine job, I didn't feel like his character's presence was absolutely necessary. He was actually useful, like, you know, short round. 
I think his name was Teddy. He does, I think he does a good job too. I like. Uh, I don't think I had a problem with any of the acting in this one. This was this was all well done. With a few script tweaks, he could have been completely written out, and I don't think it would have hurt the film all that much. But again, parallels. In Morocco, we have another car chase. There's a lot of a lot of car chases in this one. Uh, they temporarily join forces to uh, to chase him down with a little uh, tuk tuk race. It's so funny. The tuk-tuk chase through Tangiers, eh, it's not bad. And I love the whole tuk-tuk chase scene. That was absolutely brilliant. Smashing his way through. Just absolutely great, great stuff. Uh, second great sequence was the car chase slash tuk-tuk scene. I think the only thing that I didn't absolutely love about this movie was I think the tuk-tuk chase scene went on a little bit too long. We get a lot of chase scenes that go on so long i feel like some of the big action set pieces go on a bit too long chase 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 i went to the bathroom in the middle of a chase scene came back and the same chase scene was still going on it's 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 silly it's elaborate it's very very funny a lot of jumping back and forth a lot of again ridiculous things that could never happen i get it it's not a documentary they did some make ups in this now i enjoy a good a good tuk-tuk ride or a tuk-tuk race but uh there were definitely points during this ride where it was i am i am suspending my disbelief uh quite a bit but it was still pretty funny and very entertaining especially when he ignored teddy's every direction every turn every, every single thing he brought up in his defense he was right 90 percent of the time if he had followed teddy they would have gone the long way around they still didn't win but still ridiculous but it was Editing-wise, again, was a little rough. Special effects-wise, a little rough. And even though the movie does a good job with using practical effects at times, there's still an over-reliance on CG in certain sequences, which I think hinders the movie a little bit. But let me be clear. I'm a huge proponent of CGI in movies. Practical effects are fine. They get the job done, but I don't particularly feel enamored by them over the spectacle that can be generated with computer stuff, so. The the practical effects look the best. A lot of the CGI and computer special effects, you could tell just how things fall and move don't always look real. It's nowhere near as bad as some of the effects in Crystal Skull, but, it, it, you know. It... But loved it. I thought it was very fun. It does take me out of the movie a little bit, especially with the original trilogy being like all practical effects. As Voller attempts to uh, escape, the CIA intercepts him and uh, they were going to disavow him for going rogue, but Voller's cohorts end up murdering the CIA agent and stealing the helicopter. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, and look, now she's dead. And oh, he's, he's definitely a bad guy. Well, I mean, he is a Nazi. Them Nazis. He needs to be punched in the face. I mean, he took a water tower to the face, so you'd think that would be enough, but nope. However, two visual effects supervisors for the film came forward to explain how in the actual hell Voller took a pole to the face, knocking him off the train and surviving. Well, it seemed the object in question that Voller was smacked in the face with was a lightweight hose used for steam engines. Therefore, the impact would have been enough to knock him off, but do no damage. Even though he fell off a moving train, which could, I don't know, break your legs or many other bones in your body? Just saying, you know. As they said, he was a tough little bugger, and in any case, it's meant to be a surprise. Still needs to be punched. Indy, Helena, and Teddy end up uh, trailing and following Voller to Greece, where they find Ronaldo in boots. Spain's greatest frogman is Antonio Banderas. 
During the next fetch quest for a tablet that would lead them to the other piece of the dial, Indy meets up with his old friend Ronaldo, played by Antonio Banderas. Played by Antonio Banderas. Here was a new character that I would love to have seen more of just because of Banderas. I wonder if they actually make that Antonio Banderas blow-up doll. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to watch more South Park. His appearance is a glorified cameo at best, and that's welcome, but also disappointing at the same time. Maybe he's not that fascinating, but come on, it's Antonio Banderas. Anywho, Ronaldo is a professional sea diver. He's the best frogman that Indy knows. So uh, thanks to Basil's research they did on the dial, they suspect that they have to go to the ancient shipwreck in the Aegean Sea where they can find the Graphicos, which is a, a tablet, I believe, should have the directions to the other half of the dial, which means they have to go, they have to go deeper. The sequence also gives us what I would call the most emotionally gut-wrenching scenes in any of the Indiana Jones films. So Indy uh, finally spills the beans that he really has nobody in his life. Learning about Indy and Marion's son was really, really sad. Early on, we learn that Indy and Marion are estranged, but we're not really given much context. I also appreciate the fact that they wrote Mutt out as a plot point for the marriage instead of just being like, oh yeah, he's a... Uh... He's on vacation. When Indy's on the run, a newscast mentions his late son, which I thought would be the end of mentioning the character of Mutt. And they didn't try to make it change the greaser ways, because I mean, that was, uh, that was just rough. Uh, we find out what happened to Mutt. And then, of course, uh, later on, we learn that Mutt tragically was killed in action in Vietnam. That uh, because, you know, father and son don't always see eye to eye, Mutt ended up enlisting in the war and ended up dying. Instead, they go a step further and explore the relationship Indy and Mutt had as father and son that led Mutt to serve in Vietnam, which then ultimately led to his death. Which led to Marion being inconsolable and Indy to a point as well. Both, both suffered uh, the loss of their son and both handled it completely different ways, which led to them uh, getting divorced. This did help to explain a lot from the start of the film, like why he was just so much more attached and worried about his colleagues and why he wanted to help his goddaughter and why he was so crotchety. That then leads to an emotional divide between Indy and Marion, and Indy wants nothing more than to fix that, believing that the Antikythera might be the answer. And as sad and awful as that is, I, I enjoy that reason more than just simply ah we couldn't hack it because i'm a ladies man and i have a certain way of thinking or or, or whatever which is t typically the trope of why a couple will get together in one movie and then they're you know not together in the next movie as sad as i was for indy about losing his son i'm also really happy that shia labeouf wasn't in this movie is that bad killing him off in vietnam was also rough but i do think it's a fitting end uh, he was against the man, he was against his dad, and, you know, he did something. This this actually seems like a believable, legit reason. As horrible of, as a reason it is, it is, explains why Mutt isn't here, and gives some validity to why Marion and Indy are not together. I think he was finally sick of losing the people that he cared about. It's the most broken we've ever seen this man before, and you feel for him. All the stuff on the boat was amazing. The boat slash underwater sequence was fine. I think my favorite scene was the boat scene. The dive scene where they dive down into the water to go get um, MacGuffin Jr. to get the to get a mini McMuffin that leads you to the uh, big McMuffin MacGuffin. Where they have to dive down into the shipwreck in that fantastic old scuba gear with uh, Antonio Banderas. 
But I like them not having like diving, diving gear, but that umbilical crazy stuff. I mean, because this was the late 60s. I could have done without this part of the movie. I mean, that's fine. All of that could have been cut out. And again, either make the movie shorter, expand that other section. I also loved all the boat stuff. And honestly, I think that scuba diving scene was better than any of the scuba diving scenes in any of the Bond movies. Ah, that was crazy. It was intense, creepy, and well-paced. And I loved how tired Indy looked throughout this whole scene. I mean, I know that Harrison Ford is getting on in years now, and it was probably a mix of him and Indy being tired, but it worked really well, because you got to see Helena start taking over the reins a bit and take charge of the situations that they get into. There's a lot of problems with... They were in, like, weighted boots, but then suddenly they can swim kick. I don't know. I, they, I'm glad they did the whole, like, use the... Uh, inflatable life vest to pop yourself back up to the surface. I mean, three minutes is not long. You're going to get the bends regardless. I do think they could have made it a little bit cleaner at times because it was kind of hard to see what was going on in certain moments. But I guess that's accurate to being underwater. I loved the way that they got snakes in this movie without them quite being snakes. Eels. Why did it have to be eels? The eels were pretty great. Uh, you know, basically the snakes of the sea. <laughs> Also, the CGI eels really didn't do it for me. I never thought about what this film's creepy crawly would be, and eels were a fun choice. It's practically an ocean snake. And I just really dug everything about the design of the ancient wreckage. And I loved that little fake out when Helena left Indy with the eels to swim off with the tablet, and you thought that she wasn't going to come back. While Indy and Helena and, and uh, Ronaldo are underwater, Voller shows up, somehow knowing exactly where to go. Oh, and look, the Nazis. Always just show up. Uh, kills all of Ronaldo's men. And Antonio Banderas dies here, an old friend of Indiana Jones um, in the movie. Then kills Ronaldo. Uh, he doesn't die in real life, he dies in the movie. Uh, because Indy lets it slip that he can he can decipher the the readings on, on the wax tablet. If Indy had just shut up and not been so smug, maybe Ronaldo would have been alive. Too bad all the good characters in that both got got. And this scene in particular, when she sort of sweet talks the Nazis and then blows up the boat, was pretty perfect. So I think this is probably the strongest stretch for Helena here, from the point where they leave Morocco um, to the point where they get to Sicily. And she does a lot of great things here. Um, the actress, I mean, Fieber Wallerbridge. She figures out the puzzles. She manages to read the tablet in a convincing way to not give everything away, but also decipher it in an entertaining way to keep Schmidt's attention, or not Schmidt, Voller's attention, right? She manages to get the dynamite off to plan their escape. She does it all with a flair. It's just, she's great. Sort of like her deciphering the, the tablet, but not deciphering quite the whole tablet for them and keeping things secret. And Indy, Helena, and Teddy are able to escape after lighting a uh, stick of dynamite. And using the dynamite to blow everything up. It was really, really good. I love that whole sort of scene. That was so much fun. At first, I was a little bit sad because, you know, that's Indy's job is to sweet talk and Jack Sparrow his way out of things. But he just can't be bothered now. So it's nice to see someone else start to take over a bit and still have some fun, spontaneous indie flair. I would f***ing watch, absolutely watch Helena Wombat as a globetrotting, grave robbering, robbering, grave robbering adventurer. I think, I think if they ever did start to make this, you know, extend this franchise out, you know, using her as sort of the main protagonist would not be a bad thing. I think she was she was great. Uh, the section was 
over too quickly uh, and then forgotten. Because, I mean, honestly, like, even Banderas calls it out. He's like, you just killed my friends and all the people on the boat when Wallerbridge was doing her, like, professor situation thing going on. At the end of it, after they make their escape, this was kind of a, I wish they could have dwelled on it more. I, I It was a strange, laugh, disjointed scene where they're leaving and then Helena says, ah, I've always found where you're in a tight spot, dynamite. And she's waving a stick of dynamite. And then Indian Jones says, my friend was just murdered. I'm laughing because that abruptness is funny, but the movie's not playing that for a laugh. We're supposed to like feel bad at her lightness, which is weird because like these movies are kind of light despite being surrounded with death and murder. So yeah, whatever. But like, it's, it's never hinted to afterwards. Like they just all move on, jump on uh, Voller's boat and uh, take off uh, West. I believe after lying to, to Voller and saying that they were going to head East and I honestly, I, I I was paying attention, but is this the first montage? Is, is this the first travel montage that we get? Usually we have a couple. Okay. We go to Sicily. So Indy, Helena, and Teddy all get to, to Sicily. And then when she's in Sicily and on the boat, she's sort of eyeing the, the other men who are around her in that sort of uh, lustful fashion where she sort of she sort of sees that mantle of physical whatever uh, that uh, Indy used to have in these adventures. So I thought that was really great. They know they have to go to the ear of Dionysus' cavern, but uh, before they can do that, lo and behold, Voler and his cronies showed up in Sicily and and grabbed Teddy and, and make their way to the cavern. So question, even though Indy and Helena lied to Voler saying that it was east, he I know he notices that they're going west, but there's a lot of things west of where they were. Sicily is not the only thing to the west. So how did Voler know to go right to Sicily? And also, how did he even get there? They blew up the engine of Ronaldo's ship and left Voler stranded. Uh, but yet they arrive in Sicily just after Indy and Helena and Teddy all arrive? That... You, you should have come up with a better way to, to get them there or to figure that out. A lot of this movie was shot on the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios in England, which is another direct tie-in to the podcasters' system of ethos, which is always be bonding. This whole sequence in the cave beneath the Parthenon was chef's kiss. The Tomb of Archimedes felt like a classic indie adventure, and it was probably one of my favorite sequences in the film. Anywho, Jones and Helena have to get in into the cavern and find the other half before Voller does. Now, the scene where they're in the cave. The final scenes are where they're following the clues, and Indy is being that calm head when they get trapped. They take a shortcut, somehow get there, get there ahead of time, even though Voller has a head start. Indiana Jones... He says to her, like, you know, they're, they're both having almost like a crisis of confidence, you know. It's not quite, a, not, quite a, not quite a Tom Cruise film. You know, every Tom Cruise film is Tom Cruise meets a girl. Tom Cruise loses girl, has a crisis of confidence. Tom Cruise gets girls back, wins race. <laughs> That's every single Tom Cruise film. But, you know, they're starting to have a bit of a crisis. And he's like, she asks him about, you know, when he's to climb in the cliff. And he's just, she's like, what are you doing? If you're stuck, he's like... No, I'm just wondering why I'm here when my back hurts. <laughs> I'm an old man. He's complaining. We get, a, we get a nice callback to the Temple of Doom where Indy's complaining about being old and having a hard time moving around. And 
Helena's like, whatever, old man. And he says, you haven't been forced to drink the blood of Kali, tortured with voodoo. And then he says to her about, you know, girl, I've seen things. I've seen some things that I can't quite explain. Sometimes you just have to accept that there is a truth behind it or something, something along those lines. But it was really powerful knowing that he had seen some weird fucking shit through these films and he owns up to it at this point, showing that he has some history. Shot nine times. I thought that was good. And for her, that makes it seem like, wow, he has been places and done stuff and he knows weird stuff is happening um whereas if he said to her hey <laughs> i've seen some shit i have literally sent some internet interdimensional beings back to where they come from she'd be like okay you're f-ing crazy i need an exit plan i need to get out of here f-ing quick <laughs> so i really like the fact that they didn't go down that route he kept it vague it was really really good we don't get a ton of traps here we we get a couple we get a, a rickety bridge i love loved the rickety rope bridge uh we we've got uh, a cavern of a lot of bugs that incredibly disturbing scene with the tunnel of centipedes the zelda dungeon puzzle with the water displacement them managing to get an archimedes bath reference into the movie was so much fun and then we do have to figure out how to not die of of gaseous noxious fumes so uh, you know, typical indie stuff. And their clothes drying within seconds after they got out of Archimedes' bath. And that whole bit where Helena and Indy are trying to figure out the mystery based on these ancient cryptic clues was just so much fun. Jones and Helena do find Archimedes' tomb and the dial's second half. And of course, everything about Archimedes' tomb. I just, I really loved it all. But then they also notice there's a 20th century wristwatch that Archimedes is wearing. Turns out the dial is a time machine something like that. So they're now suspect that Archimedes used the dial to actually uh, travel through time. The third act of this film is where I'm struggling the most. The Indian wasn't that ham-fisted, not my favorite. And this, this is probably the weakest part of the film. I won't keep going on and on because it would just, I'll get all the scenes all out of order because I I only saw it once like three weeks ago. And it's just going to be me saying how much I love this final send-off for our wonderful Indiana Jones. The henchmen were pretty good. I'm glad they actually show the consequence of a big bad dude just being like the meathead he is. At this point, Teddy has uh, has escaped. Again, love to see adventures with Helen and Teddy. He's big. He's not fast. And wonky bridges won't hurt him. We had the large, brutish, stupid, strong man drown uh, while Teddy escaped. Did I mention that Teddy handcuffed the big heavy underground and let him drown <laughs> underwater and let him drown? Uh, Teddy killing him off was nice. Drowning the big dude, that was, that was, a, that was slick. That was, uh, ooh, you're going to have some nightmares about that, Teddy. Voler appears. There's a shootout. Indy gets shot. <laughs> uh, probably going to bleed out. That's a... Indy is shot, but of course he does not die because, again, he is magic. Did that... I mean, maybe it was just a shoulder wound. It looked low enough that it could have hit the hit a lung, but I guess not. At one point, Mads Mikkelsen says, Fasten your seatbelts. We may experience some turbulence. And Indy, who's dying from a gunshot wound, says, You're German. Don't try to be funny. Man, I, I can't really do either of their accents. I can't, I can't really do a Mads Mikkelsen impression. <laughs> Helena and Teddy escape and chase down Voler on a motorcycle. And uh, we learn Voler's plot is to go back in time and win the war. Voller uh, is able to reassemble the dial and then reveals his plan to travel back in time 
1939 to assassinate Hitler himself. Also, that was a great 180, that he's a Nazi going back to kill Hitler. They first make you think that he's going back in time to World War II to, to kill Hitler. <laughs> the Nazi who's going back in time to kill Hitler, which was a great reveal. And, then... and Indy asks him, who are you going to kill? Churchill? Eisenhower? And Voller, he knows what's up. Indiana is like, what kind of Nazi wants to go back in time and kill Hitler? And Voller's like, the kind that wants to win. Because that was one of his lines early in the movie was, you, didn't, you, the United States, didn't win the war. Hitler lost the war. He knows the real problem with World War II was that Hitler was an idiot. Uh, so... But, but, but it's not because of the evil. It's because he thinks Hitler lost the war. So... He's going to fix that. Because where Hitler failed, he will now step in and help lead Germany to victory in World War II. Not, not a good thing. So he's going to take out Hitler and do things the right way. Uh, thankfully, they don't. My thought was around the age of the character at the end. Uh, because if he's slightly younger than Indy, he'd still be in his 60s going back to pre-war Germany. So he's not exactly going to live a long and happy life past that point. Helena is able to uh, maneuver and jump on board, stowaway, I guess, on, on the big plane. Teddy jumps into a small single-engine prop plane and gives chase. Anyway, how do you go about giving up certain technologies to fix the world to be more Nazi-like? I mean, man, television, you're giving up color TV just to kill Hitler. At the airfield, Voller ends up activating the dial after combining everything, locates the closest time fissure in the sky... Now, let's talk about the time travel stuff. I really liked this story, too. The story is dumb, I'll be honest. The plot wasn't terrible. I have no problems with indie films being about magic stones or god boxes or medicinal water or time travel. Oh, end of the movie. They time travel. So good. God, I was good, ready to stand up and cheer. Like, because obviously... To me, it was obvious they were dropping all these hints that it was gonna. There was time travel, and that we had already. There had been no magic MacGuffin. They'd faked us. This quickly revealed fake out with the spear of Longinus. Longinus. So they've got the dial. The dial itself doesn't do anything but show you where fissures in time are. Of course, we're going to have time travel. As I said in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, showing the aliens or, excuse me, interdimensional beings felt like a step too far. They also go out of their way to be like, it's not aliens. Cool. Great. Whatever. If you listen to the last episode uh, for Indiana Jones, Podcasters Assemble, you might have heard that I loved the escalation to aliens, interdimensional beings in the indie-verse, and that I, I like the spectacle. I like taking the sort of supernatural, unexplainable things and heightening it and just making this whole universe bonkers. And so I said that I wanted out of Dial of Destiny Indiana Jones to go to the moon and, and fight Nazis on the moon. So imagine how delighted I was when this movie started and we had a Nazi scientist working for NASA and their moon launch had happened. I was like, yes, Yes, we're going to get Indiana Jones on the moon. They're going to have to go to the moon, a secret moon launch. And that didn't happen. Time travel is really his last adventure. But my other thing that I said I wanted to see was time travel. And boy, do they keep dropping hints about time travel in this movie. I could not have been more excited. So yeah, in case you haven't guessed it, I'm sure Eric's going to explain it. King time travel, man. So one of the things that I kind of figured out early on was that this movie was going to be a time travel storyline. As soon as th that was the quote, we've conquered space, 
I'm moving to the next frontier, Voller says to an interviewer. And then the interviewer says, what's beyond space? And Voller just gives him this long look before he's cut off. And it's like, time's beyond space, baby. That's what's beyond space. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I kind of guessed it from very early in the film, but I thought that linked up really nicely. Which, side note, made me suspect that we are we're, we're doing our, our own... Oh, what's the thing? Star Trek Next Generation uh, Temporal Paradox. Actually, the last scene makes so much sense. Uh, it's a grandfather paradox situation that resolves itself. With the religious artifacts and even the Sankara stones, there was a level of ambiguity where you kind of understood the power behind it, but you couldn't quite explain it. With interdimensional beings, there was zero ambiguity. Now, I love me some time travel, but when I heard that this movie was going to involve time travel, I got a little concerned, especially with how the sci-fi twist and Crystal Skull panned out. I didn't know what it would be. I thought maybe they'll go back to the beginning of the movie and then, you know, Voller will somehow fix that or... Because that's the kind of thing you see in a movie. They show you a scene and then there's time travel and then you go back to that scene again. So that was like one theory. I was worried that the whole movie was going to be either Indy and Helena jumping through time, which could be a fun movie, but it wouldn't feel like an indie movie. Or it was going to be Indy jumping into his younger self to fix the timeline, which also could have been cool but would potentially mess up history and the canon of the series. Uh, I was also, fingers crossed, hoping that maybe Voller would use the time travel device to go back a little bit to somehow get Nazis on the moon with the moon launch. I was still holding out hope for Harrison Ford getting a punch a Nazi on the moon. The movie really didn't do either of those things, and what they did surprised the hell out of me, where everything is going to happen as it needs to happen so that everything can continue. Here, I was thinking maybe something would have occurred that would have maybe sent someone back in time, but we never actually see it happen. That, in turn, would have explained the whirly birds on the coffin and the watch on the body. I was also kind of worried that the dial itself would work like some kind of ancient time machine, which just sounded incredibly dumb. Because how the hell would Archimedes invent a time machine without electricity or, you know, an understanding of advanced temporal mechanics and astrophysics? In the real world, uh, the Antikythera, some people say maybe it was made by Archimedes, but we don't know because he did he did make things like this and he was in kind of the right place at the right time. The movie is just like, hey, it's Archimedes' magic dial. No, it's Archimedes' scientific dial. But the twist here is that the device wasn't actually what caused the time travel. It was a mechanical calculator that could predict fissures in time. Then the fact that they were trying to get back to a point just as Germany were invading Poland or some shit, and then they ended up going all the way back to ancient Greece, and then it turned out to be a whole kind of weird plot thing where it doesn't detect time rifts, it just detects the one time rift, detecting putting 1969 back with Greece in like the whatever it was, I 212 BC, some shit like that. But the idea is that this dial can predict and can point to fissures in time, which does does a fissure in time that can be predicted make sense? No, of course not. Who cares? The important thing is I'm getting time travel. I'm getting time travel. And it was just like brilliant. I loved it. I'm going to get to watch time travel in an Indiana Jones movie. So I was excited. Sure, there's still a fantastical element there, but it's more plausible and the concept of just naturally occurring temporal anomalies is actually a really interesting one. Archimedes makes the dial to find travelers in the future to come help out his people. The people come, they scare off the invaders, he takes the watch, 
He's buried with the watch and the dial. It's found by future Indy, who go back in time to fighting Archimedes. Uh, repeat the cycle, literally. Oh, I thought that was interesting. When they go to Archimedes' tomb, you know, Voler's all, he, all, he's all about the dial, right? It's all about the dial. He doesn't even notice that in the sarcophagus, Archimedes is wearing Voler's watch. He never even bothered to put two and two together there because he's so obsessed. Because on Archimedes' tomb, there was a, a great eagle that had propellers, meaning that a, 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 a plane was witnessed by Archimedes. And when, we, when I saw this dual prop plane uh, taking off, I was suspect of, all right, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna f*** this up and they're going back in time, which is exactly what they did. Anything else left over, the plane, etc., would have been broken down for scrap by the city anyway. I mean, they were in the middle of actual war. Hell, the swastika was used far back as 500 BCE, and the siege of Syracuse took place in 213 and 212. So it would have fit right in if the people had traveled. They'd been like, oh, yeah, that's one of those uh, weird symbols from the brown people to the east. Everything nicely tidies up. In fact, it's almost a back to the future situation. Archimedes realizes his device works on, based on seeing it work and then completes it so it works. Um, it almost feels like the writers of Futurama fixed the ending because it legit works. It's a bit of a, what do you call it, a bootstrap paradox where Archimedes couldn't figure out how to build his clock thing. I was really hoping that they would leave the dial with Archimedes and create a time loop. <laughs> you know, I've got to that stage in my life now. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, time loop, people. But then he sees that he did build it. So then he had the confidence to build it, right? <laughs> So it's like, uh, and he gets the watch from Voler. That's a grandfather paradox that solves itself. But yeah, she didn't. She said he can't keep it. He has to build his bloody own. And it's just like, really? That seems very complicated for someone in ancient Greece to do that. Like That was the whole thing was just like, this is way too complicated. But yeah, it's just like there. And uh, I, I, I wish they'd gone down the route of like begin making a time loop of being like, hey, we gave him the dial so that he could then end up we could then end up getting it in the future to find the time rift to come back to him and give him the dial again. I thought that would have been really cool, but instead, no, Archimedes has to make his own f***ing dial. Get on it, boy. Get in the lab. Start making start making a big f***ing clock. <laughs> There's no problems. He didn't change the past enough to screw things up. The past changed enough to let him back. Yeah, it's it was always destined to be that way. As long as he is learning about real-world myths and legends and following them to real places and solving fun puzzles, you know it's going to be a fun time. The set design was spectacular, and everything I come to an Indiana Jones movie for. Add some Nazis and a fantastic bad guy in Vola, and boom! Great action and adventure movie. Well, that and some good old-fashioned Nazi punching. Nazi punching? 100%. Which this one absolutely delivers on. And look, perhaps certain stories in the extended indie universe have gone this extra step beyond being ambiguous, and therefore it doesn't feel like much of a stretch for some. I know he fought Dracula or some shit in the Young Indie Chronicles, but for me and my enjoyment, that's always kind of been the fun hook. Not quite knowing and always searching for the truth. If you look at it from a non-multiverse time travel point of view, it's totally fair. Uh, think Back to the Future, not any of the multiverse stuff. That said, I think they pulled it off with flying colors. But man, what they did with this was great. I loved it so much. This whole time travel sequence to ancient Greece was amazing. While they're approaching this giant fissure in the sky, uh, Indy starts to put together that due to continental drift of when between Archimedes' time and our time, it could have actually altered the coordinates. So if they use the fissure, they're not going to reach 1939. 
I don't know. So I had trouble following this. Was the Continental Drift thing true in that Voler was supposed to take Continental Drift into account in order to properly fly through the wormhole? Or was the dial always made only to travel back to that one point in time? I I couldn't get that part straight. I, I thought it was a bluff by Indiana to get him to turn the plane around. The whole thing about Continental Drift is interesting because it's true. But how does that affect a magic compass that directs you to a floating time portal? So they fly through the wormhole and do not appear back at the beginning of World War II. Nope. They show up in 200 AD. <laughs> they wind up back in ancient times. <laughs> they end up going through the fissure and uh, appear at the siege of Syracuse of uh, 212 BC. In Sicily at the Battle of Syracuse. The Battle of Syracuse. Uh, 280 BC. Also, that time portal was, what, 7,000 feet in the air? So Archimedes has to know that anyone coming in to one can fly? I love the slow reveal and, and the horrified realization that dawns over the villain's face as he starts to panic. Voller as a broken man, but when they travel through time was a pretty... It's a, he's, a, he's an interesting character. He's an interesting character. And like I said, he's this Nazi that is going to kill Hitler because he really believes in Nazism. And I am in no way, of course, never defending a Nazi at all. But as a character in a movie, this was interesting and he was portrayed well. And it's chilling because he was a smart, competent person. And then when his plans fall apart, he is just a broken man on the plane. Just like, what is this? What has happened? Which at the very last second, Voller tries to turn around and can't. And ah, thought, thought, thought that was great. I thought he did such a good, such a good job of it. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if every portal brings you back to his time, but still. Why would Nazi rocket scientists not think of that? Like, oh yeah, uh, we have moved. The stars have moved. Everything's moved. Distance-wise, even. I mean, I guess he did have a long-haul airplane that was actually from the 1940s. Although I was, I did kept thinking, once they realized what was going on beneath them, why didn't the pilot pull up so that they couldn't f***ing get speared? <laughs> Where they're just like, Indiana Jones is now back in 200 BC during this this Roman War, and they're flying a plane over these people. <laughs> Greases. Just like, come on, man. <laughs> like, World War II had a lot of warfare of people firing rockets and shells into the air to try and take planes down. And you got taken down by a fing spear from an ancient Greece person. Jesus, man. <laughs> and the Romans, man, they don't f around. They see a giant, what they call a dragon in the sky, and they're just like, shoot it with ballistas. There's no. <laughs> I always have to think of the next case scenario like, okay, say they land that plane. So Nazi checks the numbers, and it turns out that exact plane is supposed to be halfway across Europe. Nazis were super, well, Nazi about paperwork. And that is just, to me, uh, some people love this scene, some people hate it. I, It's one of the most thrilling things I've seen in a movie. There's some other things to the end with the planes and the time portal, but even the Phoenician War was kind of too CGI for me. Seeing the Roman centurions fighting on the beach was so freaking cool. There is a lot of shit going on right now. We've got warring armies. They're trying to shoot down the planes that they believe are dragons. Don't wait. Don't bother. Just shoot that f***ing things with giant arrows. And that was so awesome. Watching the, the Nazis get shot with giant arrows and the planes getting f***ed up. And As a history buff, I was just loving every minute of this. 
I wonder what would happen if they'd like flown over Civil War battle, because that's what it, it all looked like a video game. It's a big CGI fest going on under the plane. <laughs> the airplane is under fire by just spears. All the Nazi troops getting taken out by arrows and harpoons. Catapults and javelins flying through the air. The Roman legions thinking that the World War II bomber was a dragon. All of it was incredible. And the the crazy, I forget his name already. That crazy dude. Uh, was given huge asshole vibes. Then the 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 one henchman who is still alive. Casting was excellent. God, just goes ham with the with the machine gun and is just mowing down Roman soldiers. The the crazy gun happy gunman is just unloading machine gun bullets <laughs> down into the army below. Just trigger happy and just shoots everyone all the time and no more so than at the end of the movie where he's just firing whatever he can get his hands on just shooting it it's just he's affecting history of course unless this is all supposed to happen then it doesn't really matter firing off 50 cal rounds into like roman warships it's very strange uh but i mean i guess you gotta think is he anti-american because he wants to go back and be with the Nazis? I'm, I'm unsure where that whole situation was coming from. I don't know. I don't know if that character worked. I mean, I guess he could just be a white nationalist, but whatever. I'm not sure I liked him. Plane ends up be taking too much damage. The engines are taken out. It's going down. It was just crazy. This was just over the top, over the top ridiculousness. And I loved every second of it. It was so great. As the plane is crashing from having taken too many ballista shots to the engines, I like how Voler is just completely stunned. He's incapable of deciding what to do. He's fighting over the sticks with the pilots. And it reminds me of the end of Pirates of the Caribbean, um, the third one, when the first mate's like, orders, captain, orders. And the, the captain's just like, how did how did I lose? I had it all. How did I lose? And then the, the boat just like explodes in, in tons of cannon fire and that that reminded me of this so as much as i thought of some of the weakest part of the movie was the siege of syracuse i did appreciate them bringing a less well-known battle to, to modern audiences in the forefront and now a lot of people are going to remember displacement theory and a bunch of other stuff that archimedes did uh helena goes to rescue indy indian is trying to rescue helena they both jump out of, of the plane with a parachute uh the plane crashes everybody on board is killed teddy lands safely in the background Archimedes then goes to inspect the crash and he finds Voller's body badly burnt and the wristwatch in the wreckage. The Archimedes died at the end of the battle. So I guess in this movie, if he had that watch on, he didn't get to wear it for long. So he grabs that, which expa- explains how the wristwatch ends up in his tomb. I mean, technically, the battle was just one part of the siege. It could have gone on way longer. And I mean, the invaders came back, but still. They meet and talk to Archimedes. Archimedes and I guess his his guards end up saving um, Indy from the invading army uh, men. And, and, and we find out that the dial wasn't necessarily created to travel through time, but more to bring people from the future back to 212 BC to, to help them. When Indy speaks Greek to Archimedes, I started to tear up knowing how profound that moment would be to him. But there's limited time before the fissure begins to collapse. Indy, uh, bleeding out, feels that he's dying. He wants to remain behind. And then when he begged to stay in the past, I totally got where he was coming from. And it was kind of heartbreaking. 
I did think for a minute there we were going to get a very different ending, and I was actually all right with that. And uh, he was willing to go out with the bank. I thought for sure Indiana Jones was going to stay in the past, for sure, for sure. And I thought that might be a little bit silly, but I was like, yeah, all right, that's not a bad ending for it. But that being said, I can see how Indy actually traveling back in time and meeting Archimedes could be like a full circle moment for the character himself. And you have to imagine, especially for someone like him, he's an archaeologist. He's obsessed with history and being able to witness it that firsthand is like a lifelong dream. He's got nothing to live for. His son is dead. His wife and him are, are getting divorced. She'll let him die. But he also doesn't feel like he belongs in his own time. So I get where he's coming from. But yeah, I loved it as well. Jones being like, I want to be left behind. I want to stay here and study history. But what the movie does here, I thought was really clever. I don't know. Over time, maybe I might warm up to this idea. So we fully expect you know, this to be the last time we see Indy, he's gonna stay behind in the past and become part of history, I guess. Anyway, Indy says he wants to stay in 200 AD or whatever it is and live out his remaining days, probably not too many since he has a bullet wound, <laughs> but stay there because he has nothing to go back for. We just, I, you know, going into this movie being the final Indy movie, I kind of assumed that, you know, we would have to, you know, say, say goodbye to him, but nope. And then Helen just punches him in the face. <laughs> Helena smartly says, yep, but you're forgetting the first rule of time travel, which is not to mess with time. And so she knocks him out and takes him back. Helena punches him in the damn face and drags him back to the present. Knocks him out, takes him home. And it's just like, yep. But I do like that Wombat cold cocks him and brings him back to the modern times. Refuses to give up on Indy, is not going to leave him here, uh, punches him out. Not only for his own good, but because he would probably inadvertently f*** up all of human history. Because it was just going to be staying out of, like, hiding from his problems and sadness. Uh, we assume drags him into the plane with Teddy and the other gentleman who um, uh, was sleeping in the plane and that we didn't know was there. And then she takes the dial away from Archimedes. Me and my wife had a big discussion on the way home about what kind of happened here because we were slightly confused. Did Archimedes keep the watch? Because that was a bit vague. I think he did keep the watch because otherwise he wouldn't then be wearing the watch in his grave and they all uh, get back to modern time so that was awesome and then that kind of brings the loop to a close so great and let's talk about that ending the ending is great I have nothing negative to say then we get you know a sweet sort of wrap up to the movie all in all I really like the way this movie wrapped up they make it through the fissure, and we see Indy re recovering, waking up in his modern-day apartment with Helena. This movie gave me everything I wanted in my final adventure with Dr. Jones, except maybe a little cameo from Short Round. Bring back Short Round if you're trying to throw bones to previous cast members. I was kind of hoping we'd get a cameo from Kihi Kwan one last time, especially when Sala shows up with Marion at the end, but I get it. But he really wouldn't have fit anywhere, so that was actually a bit of a blessing. It probably would have felt shoehorned in and might be a bit weird from a character perspective given that, you know, he hadn't seen him in over 30 years and it would probably detract from the main story at that point, but still. Hey, who knows, maybe we'll get a spin-off series about Helena and Short Round teaming up and going off on some crazy adventures in the 70s. They did not end this movie setting up future movies, but mm, I'll watch anything with uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's in it. You know, it's happening, you know, you know how... Disney likes to milk the shit out of its properties. 
and then Teddy and Sala show up. I did enjoy the little cameo from Sala and I had hoped that Indy would let him join him on his last adventure, but his little bit in here was was really really sweet it was a really nice touch i thought you have sala's family shows up and then marion's there and sala marion all of his aches and pains all still there and marion also comes in through the door as well karen allen at the end was nice unlike kingdom of the crystal skull i was genuinely surprised to see marion at the end uh, i appreciated the cameo and, and like she she looks lived in i was hoping we would but i didn't expect to which was nice. Marion is back and they've reconciled and I still not a huge fan of their relationship, but whatever. We get a nice little love story. And right at the end, she's like, are you, are you okay? Are you hurt? And he's like, everything hurts. And then we get that, like, so it's so sweet. You get the replay of the scene from the ship in Raiders. Wonderful callback on the, it doesn't hurt. It hurts here. It hurts here. It doesn't hurt here. And then the kiss there. And we get, uh, we get a lovely, call back to Raiders. And I absolutely adored their interaction playing on that classic scene from Raiders. Also, great call back to where the doc, uh, where the, where does it hurt thing from Raiders? With Indy and Marion talking about where everything hurts and him giving her kisses. Well, where doesn't it hurt? And that, that was, I, I teared up a little seeing that. I mean, it was, when was that filmed? In the 40 something years ago? Uh, it's just, it's like watching your grandparents dance at your wedding. <laughs> I wonder if that's a little game. Like they, they've been playing that for a long time and that's how they show affection. Because uh, also, old people have sex. Sorry, there, just ruined life for you. They're old now, so at least it's like boomer love, not groomer love. So I can, I can accept that. Anyway, that, it was, that was great. The ending was great. And then, yeah, I kind of like the whole ending where Marion comes back and they romantically reconcile with Jones. And it's just like, yeah. This felt like an appropriate capper for them mending fences. And they are able to romantically reconcile. I did tear up a bit at the end when Indy and Marion reconciled. You know, I'm pretty sure, didn't they get married at the end of the f***ing Crystal Skull? I mean, I enjoyed the ending to Crystal Skull where they had the wedding and they did the fake out with Shia LaBeouf getting the, the hat. So that was cute. I'm just glad we didn't end on Shia LaBeouf trying to put on Indy's hat again. People people were like, I heard some people were like almost offended that they even teased it. I'm like, well, no, they weren't teasing it. They were saying that there was, you know, there's no way anyone could else, no one else could wear this hat. Right? They were agreeing with you people. Stop getting offended about everything. I feel like they just shoehorned the plot in. <laughs> you know. Anyway, the ending to Dial Destiny was better than that. Poor old Jones. His son died, has ruined his marriage, but then because he went back in time, she's now back with him. We hope to live out the rest of their days together. Marion Marion likes a Jonesy who's traveling places and seeing weird shit. <laughs> But the ending we got was just beautiful. It felt like a fitting conclusion to the character. Yeah, all good. No after credit scenes, no teaser for more. I was glad they didn't just kill him off and instead gave him some closure. And I really thought that was the most perfect and sweet ending for our beloved Dr. Indiana Jones. And the film comes to a close on Indy's hat, which he promptly reaches through the window and pulls back inside the apartment. So, final thoughts. I'm glad I saw this movie. This film had bits of everything we love to see in an indie film. It was very, very Indiana Jonesy. And, you know, the Nazi punching section twice. Highest praise for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. 
I think it worked. The first review I read for The Dial of Destiny gave the film 4 out of 10. Whew, this, uh, this was a movie. It concerned me going in, but I choose not to take reviews as gospel. They're someone else's opinion. I think we can all agree this is by far the worst Indiana Jones movie. The movie was fine. Overall, love the movie. Very modern feel. Many of our contributors and listeners may love it or loathe it. And their opinions are equally valid. I... I really enjoyed this movie. What a good movie. I really, really enjoyed this movie. This was the end of the uh, Indiana Jones franchise. Overall, it was a great finale to the series. For me, James Mangold pulled something off that, in different hands, could have been much worse. Does not feel like the previous Indiana Jones movies at all, but I liked it. I liked that. It didn't have the Spielberg film grainy aspect that he that he put into the older ones. This feels like a modern movie about an older franchise. And to be honest with you, what a fantastic movie. An old myth found out to be real, betrayal by someone Indy loves, super luck for our Indy that manages to spread to the other main characters at just the right moments. Overall, uh, was how do I like this movie? Was it successful? I, I probably in the uh, in the eyes of Hollywood, not a su- successful movie considering the budget is anywhere from I think three to four hundred million dollars, and at the moment, uh, it's sitting at making three hundred and thirty. Five million at the box office, which I know is still an archaic way that I don't necessarily agree with how you rate a successfulness of a movie. But uh, like I said, Hollywood probably views this uh, as a, as a failure and a flop. And I think the best thing they did with this film was not letting Steven Spielberg direct it. Because the last couple of his films I've seen, like Ready Player One, weren't very good. And I loved the books for Ready Player One. <laughs> but... I haven't been very impressed with um, anything Steven Spielberg has made in like the last probably 10 years. So I'm glad that someone else did this because they really pulled off. Swarms of things, snakes in a fashion, tuk-tuk chases, travel map scenes, ancient temples, puzzles, and of course, Nazis. Oh, and look, the Nazis always just show up. F*** them Nazis. My overall impression, um, I do... I did enjoy it more than Crystal Skull. Uh, My issues with Crystal Skull aren't because of interdimensional aliens or because of a nuclear fridge scene. As stupid and silly as those are, as many people have touched on, Indy has dealt with magic and voodoo. He has dealt with the power of of God. uh, And he's dealt with aliens. And he's now dealt with time travel. Uh, I mean, they're, they're all things that you have to suspend your disbelief it was a lot better than crystal skull hundred uh, percent and while i don't feel it's on the same level as any entry in the original trilogy i feel it's a much more fitting epilogue for indiana jones than kingdom of the crystal skull overall i like this movie better than crystal skull if you're basing your opinions of indiana jones on crystal skull don't uh but i mean even now it's still only my fourth of fifth indie movies if you get me it is is not my favorite, I'll tell you that. But I don't know if it's going to be on regular rotation for me in the future as much as the other ones are. Now, I love the opening of this one and really dug the ending. I think the only issues I have with the movie are in Act 2. And it's the same problem I have with a lot of modern big-budget action movies. 
there's some pacing issues. I loved that they made Indy far more human in this film with real adult feelings and everything. I would imagine that this movie really speaks to people of a certain generation who feel like they're no longer relevant. He finally had a side to him that was more than just the young, handsome, energetic, smart, handsome, resourceful, handsome, adventure-seeking, clue-solving, and handsome young man. Indy is a man out of time, and he feels like the whole world has left him behind. He got sad when people he loved got hurt. He got impatient and grumpy with youths. He got sad and angry about his falling out with Marion, and it showed. But it's all about the people in our lives that matter the most. It's a theme that carries throughout the entire Indiana Jones saga, and it really hits home in this one. But, you know, there's a couple of interesting things here. One kind of key thing is this is where the film, once again, as the series does, tries to somehow address what the f*** does Indiana Jones believe or not believe based on his life. Some of the biggest things in the movie were fan service, like the call-outs to Indy drinking the blood of Kali, which I'm glad he finally recognized that his previous adventures happened. And he says something like, I don't believe in magic despite seeing it a bunch of times. And I'm like, okay. I've seen things that is hard to explain, but I don't believe in magic. And that he's decided it's all about how hard you believe. That's nothing. That is a that is a terrible line that is like weird woo-woo bullshit, maybe. I don't know. It just it's one of these things that is meant to sound profound, but is just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I really I really wish they had just not tried at this point in time to address the stuff or had done it better. Uh, that didn't did not cut the mustard for me. It's interesting that he still glosses over the fact that he survived the wrath of the gods. He helped interdimensional aliens destroy the Yucatan. He's fought every major enemy the U.S. has ever had. Nazis, Russians, uh, a random Indian Maharaja. I'm just kidding. We weren't at war with India, overtly. But I feel like it is, you know, for what it's worth, I mean, that, that was an important thing that they tried to at least address. And the whole theme of time travel feels extremely appropriate considering he's still hearkening back to the good old days instead of enjoying his golden years. Go watch this film. It is great. It is such a fun watch. Is this the ending that the franchise uh, needed and deserved? Uh, I will say I think it is better than Crystal Skull, so I think that is an improvement. If, if this is truly where the franchise ends, which I'm, I think it, it should... It's it's an okay place to end it. It had almost everything I wanted, and it was so much fun. So congratulations, Temple of Doom. You are no longer even in the conversation. The only thing I really missed was the slow motion pan from the Paramount Hills logo into real hills, which was a little bit sad. The CGI and the de-aging of Harrison Ford is really bad. And they introduced Indy way too quickly, and there was no slow motion or fade-ins, so we lost some of that build-up and excitement at seeing our handsome Dr. Jones. They also go out of their way to be like, it's not aliens. Cool. Great. Whatever. But otherwise, it was back to classic Indy adventures, but with some extra heartfelt moments. Just go in it with no expectations, okay? <laughs> I know it's hard. <laughs> I went in with high expectations thinking, F*** yeah, Indiana Jones! It can't be, can't, it hasn't got Shia LaBeouf in it. It can't be that bad. <laughs> and I was right. It was brilliant. Great, great, great. Fantastic. What an ending. What an ending to a, to a series. Loved it. Again, it's really hard to rank all these movies, especially those first three. How would I rank them? Total? You know, this is firmly above Crystal Skull, and I don't 
think it gets much higher than that. Oh, God. I, I would have Crystal Skull at the bottom, uh, I think followed by Dial of Destiny and then Temple of Doom. But I really do think that this one is right up with Raiders, Last Crusade, and Temple of Doom. Certainly, my personal rankings put Last Crusade 1, Raiders 2. I think most people have those 1, 2 in any order. And then this is firmly in that 3-4 category with Temple of Doom and Dial of Destiny. And then, oh gosh, for me, I think I would go Raiders and then Holy Grail at the top. And really, Holy Grail edges out above Raiders because of the camaraderie and the interaction that you get between Ford and Connery playing uh, Jones Jr. and Jones Sr. That's such, so enjoyable. Are they perfect movies? No, they're not perfect, but they're damn close and they're, they're a lot of fun. I love them all for different reasons. I could nitpick each of them for different reasons. And we have on this podcast. And, you know, I've only seen this once. I've watched Temple of Doom a bunch of times. Doom has that really weird 40 minutes after the amazing cold open that kind of uh, feels like a, like a series of B-movie jokes over and over again. But overall, this is a fantastic series with one down note. But even Crystal Skull isn't all that bad knowing that it's not Andy's final adventure. I know on Crystal Skull, the lovely people from the great pop culture debate talked about how uh, the original movies, you know, would be torn apart as as these have been, Crystal Skull and Dial of Destiny, uh, because it was a different time. I, you know what? I I bet they're not they're not wrong. Just like with movies like Phantom Menace and Batman and Robin, sure those movies suck, but they're not quite as bad now because we've gotten more Star Wars movies and more Batman movies since then. And I feel like it's kind of the same situation here. Crystal Skull really only stung because it was supposed to be the last indie movie. But now that we have got another one, you know, I can kind of accept it for what it is. You know, this might be third. It's tough. It's tough because Temple of Doom is an original Indiana Jones trilogy film. So I'll probably say this is like one. Of, yeah, this is up there with the best of them. I'm going to put this... I'm going to put... It's long. Oh. Absolutely. Up there with the best of it. I'm going to put this third for now. I did it. I put it ahead of Temple of Doom. What I'm... What I am definitely interested in seeing is how my son, as he grows up, and I introduce him to these movies... Uh, how they will be to him. Will will he still hold the original three in his eyes as being superior to the two that come after? Similar to Star Wars, um, you know, Star Trek, some of the other franchises that have existed and continued on uh, over over the years and, and generations. Would he still have the same opinion that the first three are better movies than the second two? Maybe, but uh, only time will tell because I, I have nostalgia of my childhood and these seeing them in theaters. I really do hope that I'll warm up to it even further when I get to watch it again in the comfort of my own home, but only time will tell. But hey, it does stick to the trope that if Indiana Jones didn't get involved, nothing bad would have happened anyway. Raiders, Nazis open the covenant, and they die. Temple of Doom, I guess he may have actually saved people. That's one for Indy. Last Crusade, they drink from the wrong cup. They die. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, put the aliens together. They die. Because her mind can't hold the knowledge. In this movie, Nazis would have gotten trapped in the past. Oh, but they may have messed up history. So it may be okay that Indy helps this time. Either way, this movie's bad. I will tell you, though, I am 
I am very happy that I did get to see uh, two Indiana Jones movies in the movie theater, a franchise that I loved as a kid, uh, still enjoy today, and I will rewatch these films, you know, eventually. But uh, there's so many things that you don't get to see live uh, in movie theaters or at a concert, you know, when when people pass uh, or or a franchise is done, you don't get that anymore. But I get to do that, and that's that's pretty f***ing cool. This was a fitting end to the franchise. To me, this was a fitting end to Indy. This was a really wonderful ending to a fantastic franchise. It'll be sad that there won't be any more, but at least it went out on a, on a, on a high note. I thought it was a great time, and there was clearly a lot of reverence for the originals. The opening was incredible. The story was really clever. It was very character-focused in the best way. The themes really tied everything together. They managed to recapture the spirit of the original movies at times. It was just an awesome send-off for Indiana Jones, and in my opinion, they totally stuck the landing. Again, there's some rough parts, a few pacing issues here and there, and I still think the movie was kind of missing some of the horror elements that elevated those original movies. But as far as legacy sequels go, compared to Ghostbusters Afterlife, The Matrix Resurrections, and Jurassic World Dominion, this is easily one of the best legacy sequels by far. I can't wait to watch this again when it comes out on Disney+. Plus. I really just loved this final farewell. It felt like the perfect ending for our tired old crotchety indie and I loved it. It was so fun. It was so entertaining. The music was perfect as always. The scenery, the story, the characters were all just so fun. And it just, it was, uh, it was just so, so much better than Crystal Skull. I'm just glad we didn't end on Shia LaBeouf trying to put on Indy's hat again. So much better. That wraps up our uh, season 10 of Indiana Jones. Anyway, I've been Bill. This has been Indiana Jones, and I'm going to be the dog. Bye-bye. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us on our indie journey. Thank you so much. Be sure to follow along. We have a lot of uh, podcaster disassembled episodes. We've got some new disassembled episodes in the works over the next few months. Uh, Follow along with our Patreon. We have a lot of stuff there. And please follow and support all of the the podcasters that go and contribute audio to us to to make make these seasons because it's a lot of fun. So a big thank you to everyone who listened to this latest season and props to Eric Slater for doing an amazing job editing these episodes. Uh, and, and go 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 give Eric a good attaboy. Give him a good good pat on the back if you see your local Eric Slater because the man uh, edits nonstop and puts all this shit together for us. So thank you, Eric. Thank you to everyone who's joined me on this crazy adventure into the past this season. And I especially want to give a huge shout out to all of our patrons over on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcastersassemble for helping to keep this show going, including Zach Derby, Megan Slater, Troidal Power, Ryan McPherson, a.k.a. Frost, Prince Harming, Erica Carroll, and the Super Switch Club. Uh, Stay tuned for the next season where we're going to do some studio Jelly Belly. And we're gearing up for our next season where we'll finally be delving into some of the best anime films of all time from Studio Ghibli. Studio Ghibli? Ghibli? Next up, we've got Studio Ghibli. Or is it Ghibli? I have no idea how to pronounce that. Someone... Someone might correct me on that. I don't know. This fall, for season 11 of Podcasters Assemble, in honor of Hayao Miyazaki's final movie, 
How do you live? I have never seen a single Ghibli Ghibli movie in my life. So any of these, I will be going in with fresh eyes and no nostalgia. Uh, Will I do all of them? No idea. Uh, But I'll do, I will do some. So if you're interested in contributing to that season, head on over to our website at probablywork.com for more details. And keep tabs on our social medias at Casters Assemble for updates on how you can be part of our future endeavors. I look forward to the next season. Thanks for listening. This has been Frost from the Super Switch Club. We're taking submissions for our speedrun season. So if you check out our website at probablywork.com slash superswitchclub, you can submit audio there for any of the games we're playing going forward. We'll edit it in just like this. Anyway, in the meantime, I'm off to play some Yoshi for season six of the Super Switch Club. So come and join us and have a listen. It's a fun time, I promise. I've been Elise, and I'll catch you all later. But until then... So until next time, podcasters, don't steal that artifact. It belongs in a museum. Podcasters Assemble is a production of the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter and Instagram at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord page. Link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Intro written by Stephen White. Music by Deft Stroke Sound. Voiceover by Random Faceless Man in Front of a Microphone in a Basement. Goes by the first name Dave, last name Steele. This episode was edited by Eric Slater. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to where you can find them all online. You can also help support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called probablywork.com. Now the podcasters can go home. Now we're done. Till next time, podcasters assemble. No more, no more, more, no more assembling. Podcasters keep assembling. Disassemble. Podcasters assemble.